welcome to my coaching podcast, Dancing in the Moment, where I chat to people from the world of coaching and psychology about their story, their approach, and their insights about the coaching profession. They're all people I like, respect and admire for the way they show up in the world. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm really delighted to be here today. Well, not exactly here, sharing a screen via Zoom as usual with John Perry. Uh, John Perry, I'd like to say I, I count as a, as a friend as well as a colleague. We've known one another for, I don't even know how many years, probably at least 15, I would think. Um, and John, um, I looked, I thought, how do I introduce you? Because you are so multi-talented and multifaceted in the world of therapy, psychology, well-being. And I, so I looked at your LinkedIn profile and it said, counsellor, coach, psychotherapist, trainer, mentor, tutor, university lecturer, well-being consultant, speaker. And yes, you are all those things. Jack of all trades, I think. Master of all <laughs> trades, I would say. Um, and I, I just remembered, actually, when we first met, in the early days of me running this uh, coach training programme. And if I remember rightly, you came to see me because you thought you might... Uh, be a delegate on the mm. course and as soon as I got to know you and I knew about all your many master's degrees and your skills and your experience I said no 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 don't do the program come and teach on it <laughs> that's true <laughs> and I think you know that sort of sums up for me your mix of deep knowledge and modesty and humility and willingness to always learn more. And I really honour you for that, John. And, I, and indeed, you went on to teach on our course for very many years and were quite the jewel in our crown teaching about stress and well-being and resilience and, and, and other things too. So. That was a really long introduction, but it's to say welcome, and I'm pleased to see you. That's really kind of you. It's, uh, it's, it's nice, nice to be here, nice to catch up. Yeah, good. So I guess, you know, first question is, of all those things that I listed, how do you introduce yourself when someone says, what do, I, what do you do? It's interesting. I do remember... Uh, when I spoke at the, the Barefoot Conference and I was asked how I'd like to be introduced. And I, I remember saying as a friend of Barefoot, and so that's still one of my favorite responses to that question. So I certainly am a friend of Barefoot. Um, I, see, the jack of all trades thing was partly a, a joke, but partly there's some truth in that, I think. And that's part of my philosophy of, of, of always learning. And um, I do like the Zen, the, the Zen quotes that in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities and the expert's mind, there are few. And so I still see myself as a bit of a beginner, even though I'm 
probably coming <laughs> towards the end of my career. But I still like that idea of the beginner's mind and uh, I've still got lots to learn. So um, I think probably a student of life is as much as good and accurate uh, description of how I see myself as anything else, really. That's lovely. That's lovely. I love that quote, too. I put it in my my book. <laughs> I remember I put it, I put it in my book because for coaches because I think it's so important. And there's another similar quote that I I can't remember exactly, but it was by Patrick Casement um, in Learning from the Patient. Oh, yeah. And it was something along the lines of when you start to think you know, you're lost, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. When, that's when you're in trouble, when as a therapist or a coach, you start to think, oh yeah, I've seen this before. Um, so I'm wholly with you on that, beginner's mind all the way through this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we know nothing. <laughs> um, so let's go back and see how did you, you know, how did you start out doing this in the first place from, you know, leaving school or wherever you want to start? Yeah, so uh, I began life as a teacher right back in the mid 80s and then was made form tutor for a group of teenagers with a range of quite serious presenting problems. And I thought I ought to become a bit more skilled at helping. And so I trained as a counsellor, um, found it very interesting. So I then combined teaching with counselling and then trained as a health psychologist and then um, practiced that for a while. Uh, and then in the early 2000s, I became aware of coaching and that coaches were charging 10 times as much as counsellors. I thought, I'll have a piece of this. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I trained as a coach. And um, and more recently, I've, I've got quite into hypnotherapy and existential therapy and, um, and therapeutic coaching. And I think probably the label that fits best actually probably is therapeutic coaching. Yeah. Which is, um, well, again, if I can use the metaphor, I like the metaphor that if you're driving your car, for the most part, you look through the windscreen because that allows you to choose the direction of travel and to head to your desired destination but you do have to be willing to glance at the rearview mirror and if you don't do that then you can end up repeating the same old wrong turns dead ends wrong uh, roadblocks all those kind of things but you don't want to fixate on the rearview mirror as some therapists do and, and endlessly re revisit the past because you're you're in a state of inertia while you're doing that you can't move forwards but neither do you want to ignore the rearview mirror as I think some coaches do and say, well, that's not relevant. We just need to focus on goals and where you're heading to. But actually, the journey you've traveled is always relevant. And uh, it, it's one of the things that I think as I've studied mindfulness more and more is it's a misunderstanding of mindfulness to think that mindfulness is just about being in the present moment. Mindfulness is about being in the present moment, acknowledging the past that's brought you to where you are and the future that's also part of the reason why you're in this spot that you're in in the present moment. So... I mean, in the context of a, of a barefoot student, for example, they are present in the room or present in there, wherever they're studying, if they're studying online, but there's a history they bring with them. And also they're thinking about their future while they're present in that room. Because presumably part of their future involves coaching. So thinking about the direction of travel and looking forwards, but always aware of the past and learning from the past and learning not to repeat the same old wrong turns that you've made previously. I think all of that stuff kind of informs the way I work. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. I, I remember when you first used it, it made a, a real impact on me because you and I both 
also ha have a therapy background. So I think we've always both danced in that space mm -hmm, sure. as, as coaches. But um, in the beginning, back in the early 2000s, it, there was a very clear distinction. Well, there were almost there was a, a rule, wasn't there, for coaches sure. not to look back and to mm -hmm. only focus on goals in the future. And I'm one of the developments that I'm delighted about is the realization that has, you know, occurred within the coaching profession that you you have to coach the whole person. And um, I actually was just looking at a book that's come out this year uh, and I, I'm sort of cross because it's a, a phrase that I've always loved coach the person not the problem and and the book is entitled coach the person not the problem and I think it addresses uh, this area of um, it, it, I think it's about don't even focus exclusively on open questions that will lead to a solution but rather focus on questions that are built around reflective practice generally. Sure, sure. And I think also that the idea of, of the past and the future being part of the present does inform a lot of uh, approaches in, in uh, counselling and therapy as well as in coaching, um, particularly narrative approaches. Um, I mean, one of the things that I, I, the acronym HID, History, Identity, Destiny, you know, that, those are the three really important aspects of everyone's being. You know, what's your history? How do you currently see yourself and how do you see your destiny? So that is quite a useful acronym to have in mind in terms of coaching. I love that. And I'm going to borrow it now because, <laughs> because I do know, <laughs> I know that you have recently um, not retired, but left your post at the university, left your role at the university sure. where you've been for many years. Yeah. Um, just a week ago, did you say it was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was recent, so really, yeah. really recent. And I'm sure you've thought about all of this, but you know, clearly that history, identity, destiny comes into the space you're sitting in at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so any thoughts about your destiny? Um, I have some vague thoughts. I quite like the idea of uh, having a vague sense of uh, direction when I'm traveling but also being open to oh that looks interesting and going somewhere else so I, I quite like that and um, I, I, I'm very much influenced as well now by narrative approaches and the idea that um, we can think of personality as, as having like an outer layer which is your personality traits you know that what people assume about you how you present in the world and then below that there's a, a layer of your kind of hopes and goals and ambitions that for the most part you keep private so you've got your private self as well as your public self that you show the world but underneath that the deepest layer really is is the kind of your life story the, the kind of narrative you write about your life and and uh, and also how it ends and so I, i'm kind of aware that I've, i'm currently writing the next chapter in my in my life story and also that i'm the one with the pen you know that's for me that's understanding that and that it really is up to me what happens in the next chapter and as you oh. drive along your road, you know, <laughs> you can just take turnings when you see a signpost that says something that appeals to you. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But having a general sense of direction, you know, I, I know in, in some respects it's about having, I know that people, self-psychologists talk about the desired self and the undesired self. 
and you need you know what is it i need to move away from as well as towards yeah you know, those, those aspects are, are quite interesting yeah. yeah what i want to move away from is all the admin <laughs> don't we all you know i uh, when i started teaching i think 90 percent of my time was spent in the classroom and 10 percent doing admin and it was completely the other way around by the time i finished so yeah. <laughs> that's part of the reason why it felt like a good time to go yeah i hear that i hear that such a lot from teachers uh, i was recently asked by my own business coach to write a list of uh, a love-hate list of of the roles that i do in the business and the job you know the jobs that i have in the business and it was a you know sort of fairly basic idea something that i've asked other people to do i'd never done it myself when i did it myself it something was really apparent to me the energy that i had writing about the things that i love <laughs> and i went into real detail and got really excited and was even having ideas as i was writing about how i like having ideas you know and then and this is a huge long list of the things that i loved doing and the list of things that i hated doing was relatively short but it wasn't short in terms of the number of things it was like that i couldn't even find the words to describe them it was just like admin uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. accounts i i, I couldn't <laughs> my energy just completely drained yeah. so yeah it's useful to have that towards away from motivation in mind at all times as well yes absolutely run yes. away from the admin as fast as you can. Yes, absolutely. I think it was probably sitting in a four hour exam board meeting where probably 10 minutes of it was relevant to me, but I had to be there for the whole four oh. hours. That made me think, you know, time is such a precious resource. Yeah. That to spend it here now doing this, it's it's, it's not what I want to be doing. Well, bravo <laughs> to you for getting away from that i'm 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 happy for you i'm happy to be talking to you here today because i know it's been something that's been sort of wearing around your mind mm. for a while um so we in advance of this podcast i asked you is there something because i know you have so much to offer is there something particularly you really are interested in at the moment that you would like to share with the listeners and I'm, I'm going to let you tell me in your own words what that is. Okay, thank you. So, yeah, one of the things that, um, that I've been very interested in for the last few years is, is the critical difference between self-worth and self-esteem. And self-esteem is contingent. We earn it and we build it by doing good work, by running the race, by climbing the mountain by passing the exam and we can boost our self-esteem but self-worth is our birthright it's an intrinsic quality that we're born with and we don't have to earn it it's just a, it, it's with us the whole time it's every baby is born innately worthwhile with intrinsic worth and value and no one ever empties them of that so they always have it so self-worth is the quality that you that you you always have and, and the, the ability to be your own best friend to actually be kind and compassionate to yourself as you would be to anyone else um and in my mind too much of an emphasis in coaching is giving to self-esteem goals which is and and this notion of the optimized self and you've got to be the best you can be and the implication for many people i think that to some extent 
if you're not currently being the best that you can be, then you're not okay. That you're in some respects found wanting or you're deficient or you're inadequate. And it's one of the kind of the laws of reverse effect that the more you pursue self-esteem, the shakier grip on self-esteem becomes. Because you could always be doing better. You could always be doing more. You could always be running faster. You could always be getting an A star rather than an A. And actually, once we focus instead on unconditional self-acceptance, we just accept ourselves as we are, then actually change actually becomes much more possible because it's about allowing ourselves to grow and flower without judging ourselves and without chasing something which actually ultimately is unattainable and just being comfortable being. And for me, this in terms of, particularly because of uh, the last few months, last six months, I've had a very clear mental health focus as one of the pastoral tutors at the university working with all the students in crisis. Many of the crises at root were crises of self-esteem. So students who were failing in their exams and feeling inadequate, feeling worth, worthless, or students who were uh, feeling isolated and uh, again feeling that somehow that, that must mean there's something wrong with them. And actually focusing on self-worth and unconditional self-acceptance seemed to be the thing that actually that produced the kind of change that we were looking for. Um, and it's also linked, I think, ironically, to a sense of our place in the universe. So one of the ideas of uh, self-worth psychology is every human being is born worthwhile, born okay. Um, and that self-improvement is a journey, but it's not a destination. You never get there. And it's great fun to be on that journey, but we have to accept we're never going to arrive. You know, none of us are perfect, but all of us are worthwhile. And also crucially that uh, imperfections add value they don't take it away because if everyone was perfect then everyone would be replaceable by anybody else the thing that makes you irreplaceable is your imperfections and every human being is a bit like a mosaic piece every piece of a mosaic is incomplete but it's the only piece that can fill that hole in the total mosaic and every human being is a work in progress but still the only human being that can fill that gap in humanity, that is the they the them shaped gap in humanity. And talking about these ideas with students, particularly students in crisis, seems to have made a, a much more significant difference than trying to boost their self-esteem. In other words, by trying to say, but wouldn't you feel better about yourself if you studied harder, or if, if you ate healthier, or if you exercise more? Because actually that's all contingent and it's all conditional. Whereas accepting yourself as you are right now, not as you might be in the future, but as you are right now, that's the start of profound change, in my experience. And I've linked it to current research on what are called awe walks. So an awe walk is spelled A-W-E, so a sense of awe and wonder. Okay. An awe walk is where you just walk for around 15 minutes, but with a very clear sense of your place in the universe and connecting up to your environment and just noticing the cloud formations and I'm lucky because I, I live on a cliff top so looking out at the horizon seeing the sea the cliffs and connecting up to your place in this with a sense of awe and wonder and what's very interesting if you take two groups of uh, people and half of the groups you just say look go out for a walk every 15 for 15 minutes regularly and see if it lifts your mood but all they're doing is walking but if you give a clear instruction to go on an awe walk and as you walk 
really get a sense of your place in the universe, your connection to something far more significant than yourself, but of which you are a part, a crucial and important part, an irreplaceable part. And you ask the students to take those walks. So some are taking them, just they're walking, and some are doing the all walk. And during the walk, they're asked to take just one selfie picture on their phone. The students that are just taking a walk, they are central, they fill the whole picture, it's all about them. But those that are doing an all walk, they're very small in the selfie. It's all about the environment. Okay, and they can talk about the picture and how, you know, they didn't want to fill the picture because they wanted to get that, that sky in it or they wanted to get that green field in it. Or, and it's, it's a very interesting idea that once we accept ourselves as we are and become secure in our place in the universe, then we don't need to be pursuing esteem from exam success or hitting our target weight or getting esteem from other people and seeking validation. We just feel much more secure in our place. So that's, that's really what I, I suppose <laughs> has been at the forefront of my mind in terms of coaching is just be clear that you're not encouraging people to have a, a very contingent and fragile grip on self-esteem when actually what we could be doing is promoting self-worth, which is where it all starts really. It's a much more solid foundation. Thank you. That's a really beautiful, valuable, profound distinction uh, that you have made, one which resonates with me wholeheartedly. Um, so many things popped into my mind when you were speaking then. Um, one was uh, a recollection of my children. I often, I often used to talk about this when I taught the course and when I talked about self-worth. Um, when they were little, I was aware that they used to kiss. We had a, we had a sort of, um, you know, full length mirror and they used to kiss the mirror they used to kiss themselves they were so full of love for themselves that when they saw their reflection they would go up and kiss it and I used to think it was so beautiful and, I, and then I noticed as they got to like obviously they stopped doing it when they were about three I think and but by the time they were sort of 11 or 12 they were doing exactly the opposite like seeking out what was wrong with them mm. and um it was it was such a, a a sort of visual representation of what happens to how we feel about ourselves in those through through life um it also reminded me of a uh you you put that really beautifully so this is an addition not a comparison but a, a, a TED talk which maybe you've seen called The Art of Being Yourself. Have you seen that? No, no. Uh, it's by a woman called Caroline McHugh um, and she's just talking in from a different perspective but about you know the idea that you're already complete and and find your uniqueness find that thing that makes you you um, it's it's she says individuality is all it's cracked up to be <laughs> and I love that I love that expression so it's probably worth you having a look at it I don't think there's anything new in there but, but slightly different sort of slant on it um, I was also thinking I was also thinking that actually what 
we do, and I'm sure others do on coach training programs, is probably address the self-worth of people who are training to be mm. coaches. So I think they go through that process. There's a lot of looking at what stops me kissing myself in the mirror these days and you know, messages and beliefs and assumptions and conditioning and um, you know, adapted behaviors that are looked at, examined and re rewritten as a as a a kind of rewriting of our scripts on the coach training course. And, and I'm just wondering also how many coaches then go on and do with their clients what was done for them on the coach training programs or how many perhaps also fall into the thinking about needing to make someone better you know needing to optimize that person um and and if they do i'm pretty sure that might be driven by the a familiar need that i see in coaches to feel like they've actually done something measurable yeah yeah i think that's right and i think there's also a cultural component to this this the kind of miss of the optimized self um, and it's it's quite an unhelpful idea i think and, and that the focus i think probably those who are much more oriented towards nlp particularly are very keen on this idea of the best you implying that the you that you are currently is not okay um, and it's in terms of um what i was saying earlier about the, the kind of writing the life story and so on i think in narrative therapy, there's three key questions that people tend to ask. The first one is, what's the story? So just tell me who you are. Tell me your story. Uh, and then the next challenge, which is a much more of a coaching type challenge, is what's the real story? So actually, what are all the bits you've missed out? So you've given this version of yourself and your life story, but what haven't you told me? So what's the real story? But most crucially, it finishes with what's the right story? So what's the story that you want to tell, the story that's going to work for you? And if you go through that process of what's the story, what's the real story? Let's be a bit more honest. And what's the right story? The right story typically isn't about great achievement. It's about acceptance. The right story is a story, a narrative of my life in which I come to realise that actually I was OK all along. I wasn't perfect. I was flawed like everybody else, but I was fundamentally OK. And that's the kind of redemption story that often really helps people psychologically that's lovely thank you i i, I really love those three questions i also like the idea of all walks and yes. um i wonder and and are they are they yours or can they be found somewhere because on these podcasts we like to give some links is it but all yeah sorry all walks have been around for a long time um and, and are part of the kind of mindfulness psychology uh approach really um so you know i, I don't claim uh, authorship of that and i can't remember who did to be honest. No. It, it, it's just one of those practices that I, I i personally do and and also i just notice the change it makes in people and and the difference and and what i notice is when i'm doing an all walk i don't have my headphones in i'm not listening to music because i would miss nature i would miss the sound of the sea or the the wind in the, in the trees and so on um 
if I could just mention a couple of other things that are linked, I think, quite importantly to what happens when you switch from pursuing self-esteem, which is always contingent and conditional, to embracing self-acceptance, which is unconditional, is you focus much more on being interested in other people. Whereas when you're pursuing self-esteem, your focus is on being interested in yourself. And I think in coaching, that's so important. Coaches need to be interested. They need to yeah. give up their ego and stop trying to be interesting. And too many coaches, I think, <laughs> try to be interesting. Yeah. They try to show how interesting they are. You should be the opposite. You should be interested in the other person, not in not trying to be interesting. The other thing I think is when you when you really embrace self acceptance, you stop asking how did I do, and you start and the focus isn't on you, but it's on how helpful was that? Could I have been, you know, anything that yeah. could have been more helpful? Yeah. So people who are pursuing self-esteem will often, if they give a talk, they'll say, how was I? How, and it's all about them. It's how you were is irrelevant, actually. What, which of that, what of that content was helpful is the question. And that's about saying, if I take myself, if I surrender my ego, take myself out of the equation, because I don't need a boost because my self-worth is there. I don't need a pat on the bat. I don't need someone. To, to boost me up and tell me I did a great job because actually I know I'm okay you know I woke up okay this morning I go to bed okay tonight what happens in between can't touch that so I don't need that lift anymore I just need to know what was helpful and was there anything that would have been even more helpful and that way you produce much more satisfied clients I think because your focus is on how helpful you are rather than how you as an individual are doing yeah that's a it's a great kind of uh perspective shift and what occurred to me as you were saying that about coaches focusing on being interesting uh, I couldn't help linking back to your early statement in this podcast where you said you were going along nicely as a therapist a counsellor and then you started to hear of this thing called coaching work and <laughs> 10 times as much money and I think that earning of 10 times as much money leads to that leads yes. to that like I've got to do something that's going to really impress people I've got to be interesting I'm going to chemistry you know therapists don't have chemistry meetings do they <laughs> you just find one and and if you don't get on you both discuss that and you find a different one but uh, there's this kind of you know rehearsal you know, audition lineup mm. beauty parade chemistry <laughs> and, and I think all of that feeds those behaviors yes i think so yes and i think uh i mean it's a little bit like charisma isn't it that um where people focus on on being charismatic whatever that means to them they can be like energy vampires they just actually draw all the energy to themselves and that leaves none for anybody else so i do think humility is a really important quality actually so if you were working if someone came to see you and they said, okay, yeah, I want to be, yeah, I want to be the next Jeff Bezos. I want to, you know, I want to be a super entrepreneur. I want to write books. I, you know, this is my destination and I want you to help me get there. Mm. And they were kind of, you know, being that energy vampire, how would you 
approach that person. You're not allowed to say you wouldn't work with them. <laughs> well, actually, I've only ever refused to work with one person <laughs> in, my, in my whole career. Um, for me, it, do, it does come back now to if you accept yourself fundament, as fundamentally worthwhile and okay, whether or not you achieve those goals, then you are much more likely to achieve those goals. Yeah. So I would still start from that premise. Absolutely. You know, if you think... I couldn't live with myself if I missed this penalty. You're not going to score that penalty because your legs will turn to jelly. Yeah. If you, if in that, even in that very pressured situation, you can remind yourself that I was fine when I woke up this morning and I will be fine when I go to bed tonight, whether or not this goes in the back of the neck. It becomes a low stakes event. Then. And, and actually, I think the most successful people, by and large, practice that. Certainly those who are successful without relying on drugs and alcohol or without having huge mental health challenges actually accept that they were, they're okay whether or not this deal is successful or it's unsuccessful, whether or not the book sells or it doesn't. People who put all of their value on their next project being a success, it's, it's a very precarious grip they've got on their notion of success and self-esteem. Yeah, I agree. I've worked with two sports internationals whose careers were ended prematurely and who had significant mental health problems following that and it was all about recognizing that they didn't need to play for their country to be worthwhile you know that's that if i if, if there's no obvious route to self-esteem anymore where do i get my esteem from and it's actually so you don't need it no you can just you, you can just substitute self-worth for self-esteem and then you've just got it yeah yeah, it's very, uh, this is very much uh, resonating with me. Um, oh gosh, it's a book that we've both read. But, <laughs> but I, <laughs> there are many books that we've been, both read and it's completely left my mind now. It's a book about identity. Um, oh damn, it's just gone. <laughs> but where, but it, it, essentially the person who's writing who's a philosopher <laughs> I know we've both read it and I teach it on my grief course but that he interviews people who've whose identity has ostensibly been changed because maybe they were maybe they were uh, veterans of a sure. war and they've lost parts of their body there might be people sure. whose bodies or or appearances been mutilated or disfigured um people who've um had like lost members of their family so their relationships identity has changed and it's the, the whole idea and everyone who's listening I'm sorry for my <laughs> complete amnesia about this it's a book I totally love and recommend I'm going to put it in the link at the bottom of the podcast but it's about exactly that who are you actually when you know when you're not a, a husband or a wife mm. or, a, or a university lecturer or a coach or an author or a football player, who are you? Sure. And that, that is your constant. Absolutely. And it comes back to that history, identity, destiny, isn't it? That ultimately we can choose to a degree, at least our destiny. And um, sociologists tend to call it this thing biographical disruption, which is you, you have your life story, your biography, and it's going along to plan very often and then something happens which is quite traumatic and it disrupts it and you end up somewhere else with a different biography but you don't necessarily have to 
so if you, um, you might remember, I did a lot of work a while ago with the combat stress charity, PTSD Resolution. Yeah. And there I'd often worked with soldiers who'd lost limbs, but they didn't all experience biographical disruption. So those who joined the army to be action men, some of them remained action men. They just were action men with prosthetics. Yeah. In fact, some of them were much more action men than they had been before. <laughs> Um, but some experienced biographical disruption. And those were the ones that actually had that massive dip in mood because I was an action man. Now I've lost both legs below the knee. I'm no, no longer an action man, but actually they could still be. It's, you know, that the, the whole idea of the, the narrative approach is you're still the one with the pen. You've still got a degree of choice over how you write your next chapter. Um, which comes back to, again, the work of Frankel, who you know I'm hugely influenced by Viktor Frankl's work. I know, and, yeah. And Frankl says you can add meaning to your life, you can find meaning in your life by actualizing what he called creative values, by doing worthwhile stuff, by doing good work. And it doesn't have to be writing a symphony or writing a poem or producing great art. The postman that delivers the mail with a smile is actualizing a creative value, doing very worthwhile work. Um, experiential values, so going for that walk, but taking your headphones out and really listening to the sounds that you can hear, really noticing what's around you. You know, if there's a beautiful sunset and you're on your phone, you've missed it and you'll never get that chance again. You've missed that opportunity. So we can find meaning by doing worthwhile stuff, by experiencing life as it is in the here and now. But if things are really tough, we can find meaning through actualizing what are called attitudinal values by the attitude we take to our situation, to our suffering. Yeah. And that for the soldiers that lost limbs and didn't have that massive dip they were able to actualize those attitudinal values which is to choose a positive attitude even in the face of this enormous trauma and so recognizing that actually we, we are able to actualize values in those three different areas again it, it, it's really quite key to to being able to face the reality that life throws you some curve balls oh. um, yeah <laughs> it, it's about that isn't it it's about embracing uncertainty um holding on holding uncertainty um but also that you, also that you're okay whether or not you're managing to do that and i think you know that's the point i'd like to really emphasize you know as we come towards it is i know that one of the mental health charities is using this phrase it's okay not to be okay yeah. it's the wrong phrase it's completely the wrong phrase it should be it's okay not to feel okay because yeah. you are okay, even when you don't feel okay. Yes, I like that. I like that. It's a really important distinction. I like that shift. Yes. I, I, I really um, feel strongly about, about the value that coaching can bring to people's lives, but at the same time, how a little bit of sort of positive thinking be your best self um idea from coaching has seeped into our culture gen mm. generally and how you know my, my own experience of that my really harsh um realization about that was when my daughter was you know, given a terminal diagnosis out of the blue, you you know about that. Yeah. Um, many people listening to this will know about that too. Um, it, it was definitive. You know, there was no hope from the outset. She was going to die. She had um, 
something that was totally incurable and she was going to die within a very short period of time. And we, um, you know, we accepted that we had to. Um, it was it was really painful for her. She was only in her twenties, and it was a you know huge shock. Apart from the fact that you know we kind of expected lots of people wouldn't know what to say, we didn't expect that a lot of people would sort of add to her sense of failure, if you like, by saying things like come on, you can think yourself out of this. Or some people even said, well, you must have been thinking some bad thoughts to have got you. You know, that whole notion that you can think yourself out of anything, you can make yourself actually better, um, really horrified me. Mm -hmm. And since then, I have not as beautifully or, or articulately as you have done today, but I've sort of been on a bit of a mission to dispel that myth about coaching too. Yeah, I, 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 I can only again say just how sorry I am that you, you had that, that just terrible experience. It, it, it is one of the things that I think some very crass versions of coaching emphasize and, and barefoot absolutely doesn't but but i uh, have heard others say the only thing holding you back is your limiting beliefs and it's just not true it's just a nonsense and i can understand where it comes from again it certain schools particularly the optimized self the be the best you the only thing holding you back are your limiting beliefs if one can anyone can it's just palpably untrue you know that you, you can you can wish away a terminal diagnosis it's just it's, it's not just silly, it's cruel. But also the fact that Usain Bolt could run 100 metres in under 10 seconds doesn't mean I can. It's just my limiting beliefs that's holding me back. That's just silly. <laughs> I was never going to. <laughs> and, and the fact that Richard Branson can go from a standing start to being a billionaire doesn't mean anyone can if they model his thoughts or if they get rid of their limiting beliefs you know the overwhelming majority of business startups fail and it's not because they haven't got the right beliefs maybe they haven't got the right product or whatever else but you know it's this notion that the, I say that what if we get our beliefs in line we can achieve anything and there are no limits yeah. it's not very helpful and it's not very grounded and I think it can unwittingly be quite cruel in setting people up to fail which yeah. is not what we should be doing yeah, yeah. And um, there's so, you know, there's so much in this, John, and I know everyone uh, listening will be um, very taken with your uh, thoughts today. Where, you know, where can you direct people? So coaches <laughs> who are listening to this, you know, what, what resources, if any, would you recommend? Um, that you know where they can find out more I, yeah I don't know that there's much more to find out in many ways because I think you've articulated it uh, simply and clearly um, and you've given some ideas about how you work with people but is there uh, is there anything else that we could offer to the people listening to this that they might read or access yeah I mean I've mentioned Frankel and I, I always like to reference Frankel. I think he was, he was a marvelous human being as well as a marvelous writer. Lots of people know Man's Search for Meaning. Actually, I think Doctor and the Soul is a much more complete book. 
So if you want to read about Frankel's philosophy, also I'm, I'm very much influenced by uh, William Glasser and choice theory. And, and I think that sits really well with that interface between coaching and therapy. Because Glasser was a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist, but actually his idea of choice theory is very, very much in line with, with coaching philosophy. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it, it avoids some of the uh, extreme claims that are made by some of the people in the field. John, thank you so much. It's been a delight to see you again. That's my pleasure. Thanks ever so much, Kim. Great to talk to you.